Welcome to the Experience Ed Podcast. I am Jim Steller. I am Mary Churchill. And I'm Adrian Dooley. We bring you this podcast on experiential education with educators and thought leaders from around the country and the world. So here we three are a few months into the pandemic and looking for light at the end of the tunnel. I have to ask you two university denizens, how it is it affecting you and your universities? Ah, uh, it's a huge answer, Adrian. I mean, really, I think um, Boston University uh, really made some major decisions very quickly while our students were on spring break. And so that was challenging because our faculty were also on spring break. And um, faculty don't get vacation, you know, they have the summer, but during the year, they really only get those spring breaks. So I think it was on a Tuesday of um, spring break when faculty are with their families and enjoying their vacation and we contacted them and told them that we were um, taking all the face-to-face -face courses uh, remote and so that they needed to start working on that transition plan immediately and we contacted the students and said um, if you can go home to your families go home this is particularly too for undergrads and don't come back if you have to come back, we can make exceptions for folks who have to come back. Um, and that we hustled and took folks remotely. At the same time, later that week on that Friday, the mayor um, of Boston announced that Boston Public Schools would also be going remote um, until at that point it was April 27th. So this was, I think, March 13th. And then uh, BU, was asked to really keep the students on campus to a minimum. So they had to go back to the students and say, no, you actually can't stay here anymore unless there's a hardship and that you apply for the hardship. So uh, that all happened within three or four days, all of these changes. And then um, we were supposed to come in as staff and have a skeletal crew supporting the students who were still on campus, but then we were told by the governor and the mayor and our president, nobody is coming to campus. So, so this has really happened very, very quickly. Um, and now we are housing um, kind of emergency responders in some of our um, uh, dorms. And uh, so are many of the universities in the city. I think over 10 of us are housing either healthcare workers or um, homeless shelter workers, and we've really transformed what we do. Um, and just a, a kind of a interesting little story about that. The students didn't come back, right? So their rooms are filled with their stuff. And to clear out those rooms, they had to photograph every single thing in the room and go to the two roommates and say, is this yours? Is this yours? Is to pack it up to clear it out, wow. to get the homeless workers in. So this just has all happened in, I mean, the homeless shelter workers in. So this is just kind of the level of um, craziness that we're dealing with. And I, think, I, I did want to speak to, because I'm in a college of education and human development, um, we have uh, practitioners out in the field. And so when we knew this could potentially um, come to remote work, we hustled to make sure that they had fulfilled all their requirements in terms of hours. Um, and really, especially for the teacher candidates who would be graduating this spring and going into, the, going into their jobs this summer, 
and next year. And we did that, but we also have done a lot of remote work with um, the candidates helping their, uh, their presiding teachers continue that work remotely with their students, which is really interesting. I think we have in the special ed area, we're working with teachers in 40 different districts for continued continuity of operations to help them finish up the school year. So a lot of changes really quickly. People have been amazing and it's really been um, a full community coming together. So. I think the same thing happened at the University of Albany. We have a slight advantage because it was announced on a Wednesday of the week before spring break. And so everybody got to commiserate a little bit, but the, all the same things that, that Mary talked about happened. Um, where I used to park my car to go to my office is now uh, a testing site for the COVID virus with its tents and the city came in, you know, we're, we're a state university, so it's natural we'd have partnerships um, and, uh, and I think the issue with the housing <clears throat> hasn't really happened, but the students have been asking uh, the housing people, can I come back and get my laptop, which I left in my room or something like that. And they've been letting them do that on a case by case basis. They sent us all a note saying that if you come to your office and you're not supposed to, there's some blue tape on your door, uh, take it off. Uh, go in, get whatever you need and go home and leave it off because that's the signal to the housekeeping that they have to go back in and sterilize that room again because uh, they've done it once. Um, and that way they can keep track of which rooms have been contaminated. So it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, I will say that um, it's uh, uh, been a big transition for me as someone who's teaching a couple of courses. Uh, the courses were hybrid. Um, so, anyway. Jim, you were actually teaching a course that was trying right. to use the principles of experiential education before the shutdown happened. Um, how's the course going uh, now that you went totally online? Yes, well, that's interesting. Uh, thanks for that question. And the uh, experiential education part is maybe relevant to this podcast as opposed to COVID, which is relevant to everybody. Uh, but uh, so we set out, uh, two of us, uh, to teach this course. Uh, I call them RAs, and, but they're like TAs. Uh, so the course doesn't meet on, it's a Tuesday, Thursday course. It's psych one. There's two sections, a morning and afternoon. It doesn't meet uh, on the Thursdays. They do these exercises. And the exercises are designed to engage the students. So for example, we have an online textbook that is free, um, OpenStax. It has at the back of each chapter about 20 multiple choice questions we give them those questions on Blackboard and the answers to those questions and ask them to skim the chapter. We actually tell them don't read it, just sort of go through it, then go to question one. <clears throat> and if the question one was something you really get the answer to, uh, Freud studied frogs, the unconscious, uh, and then you would um, be okay. But if you didn't understand it, uh, then use the search function and hunt it down in the text of that chapter and find the right answer. Uh, this ensures that you're not just passing your eyes over the paper. Why would you do that? Because when you get to the exam, there's going to be a half of the test will be multiple choice questions. Now, by the time the exam rolls around, there'll be about 100 of these questions. And I'll put like 15 of them on the quiz, on, on the exam. Um, but if you don't do this and other people do, you'll be at a disadvantage because they'll recognize the questions. So this is trying to use the, the real world test, which I can control. Um, to get the students to do something that's really engaging. It says in the top of the syllabus, we want you 
to engage with us and the material. So we think engagement is the way to learn. Now, when the course went online, to go to your question, you can't do that anymore because we have to give open book tests. And you don't have to learn anything. You can just print out the questions and the answers and quickly search and find question 13 is the one that's the first question on the exam. So there'd be no learning involved. So we switched to totally essay. Um, and uh, I think uh, my experience is that, that uh, it's very convenient. Uh, I can be uh, dressed in a sweatshirt uh, and not have to put my suit on to go to class. Uh, I tend not to wear a tie anymore since I'm no longer an administrator, but I don't have to get dressed, I don't have to drive. But it's not quite the same. I, for example, cannot have the students required to take my classes on Zoom uh, because some of them can't do it. So we have optional Zoom discussions of the online PowerPoints that I now audio annotate, which fits together with the book uh, to be their learning material. Uh, I'm glad I had seven weeks with them to develop personal relationships and to uh, get to know that we're all in this together and establish the tone because I think it's really carrying um, the course now that everybody's filling online. So yes, it's working, but thank God we had that first half. And even though we're hybrid, there's, uh, there's a lot to be said for face-to-face -face encounters. I mean, I think universities really um, like that interaction between the students themselves and the students and the faculty, which is why I think that there'll always be a role for face-to-face -face universities, even though the online is so much more efficient it might not be as effective when it comes to experiential like things, like figuring out who you are, whether you're really interested in this field. So uh, it's been a challenge. Um, and uh, I think like the rest of the world, uh, I'm a little stir crazy, <laughs> <laughs> but um, we're doing it. I just wanna add one thing, Jim. I think that kind of that emotional and relational piece is, um, especially for those of us who are not digital natives, is challenging. You know, I watched my 15-year-old son, and even though he is a digital native, he really misses his friends. He's an only child, right? And so I think even those who've been raised in this completely online environment or, or a totally online environment are missing the face-to-face -face interactions. And I think that we haven't given that enough um, value. I haven't really expressed that value. And I think this is highlighting the importance, particularly for experiential ed. I think that's a great point um, because I'm old enough now to have heard for 20 years that online education was going to wipe out real world bricks and mortar campuses because of its price. And even though we've got tremendous student debt uh, in America, and that's a problem, there's still this value. There's a reason, I think, that while we have tons of online and a lot of students doing online while they're in the real world, they really want to come to campus, be together, look each other in the eye, figure out things from what's my major to uh, should we get married uh, or should we date <laughs> or what's my gender orientation? I mean, I yeah. think those things are really priceless and make a better world, frankly. Uh, so maybe you're right. Maybe this uh, side effect of this um, a crisis will be a deepening of interest in experiential education. Yeah, and really taking advantage of the times we are face-to-face, -face, right? I think some of the hybrid international programs I've designed in the past 
our low residency, so mostly online, but we would bring them together either in their country or in the US for maybe an intensive week or two in the summer or during a break. And that was enough to carry them through the year. And But we really took advantage of that limited time together to make it really, really meaningful. Right. Rather than you have to come to class three hours a week and sit there and be bored or whatever, you know, kind of that routine, that routinized piece. It's more really valuing that face to face time and making it it's more precious now, I think. That's a good object lesson for us, I think. And I just want to uh, tie in that we had a podcast at the end of the fall season by a guy who runs a company that specializes in bringing virtual mentors to class. So there you in in the class with your team of eight or nine students and you're doing some cybersecurity like project like you were a, a company trying to solve a problem for goliath bank that's one of the free phrases they use that had a cybersecurity break and there's all these roles and there at the bottom of the screen is that guy who is the is a, an important person or that woman um from uh, capgemini or deloitte a real company and you can see something happen to the kids because they're thinking wow this is real my professor is not going to be able to hire me when I graduate, but this person could. Yes. <laughs> and and they, they dress up a little bit and they try to, to be more uh, present. And if it gives them anything, it gives them at least some experience of what it would be like to have an interview for an internship and maybe for a job. So there's lots of ways in which I think we have models that are out there. Another one that we interviewed was the K-12 uh, people, Sean McGalman, just the last podcast. Um, and uh, that company is dedicated to providing online education in the K-12 space, but his specific job in the company, as you remember from the podcast listeners, uh, is to, do, to bring experiential education activities to help those students get ready for their careers using something else besides the content learning. It's really great. Um, so, um, Switching gears. Yeah. <laughs> Adrian is going to bring us an international perspective. So Adrian, you moved to St. Thomas in January to continue your speech pathology career. You had no idea when you set it up, or maybe even when you went that a pandemic would hit. What is it like now in paradise? You know, um, it's very like the rest of the world in so many ways. And then, you know, we very often have so many other opportunities down here to entertain ourselves. Um, when I came down here, of course, I had no idea this was going to happen and it happened very quickly. So just as I started getting the practice up and running and getting clients in the door and making relationships with schools where I would be working, it all fell apart. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, so a lot of the demographic of people I work with are children, you know, maybe eight and younger, and a lot of them are on the autism spectrum. So drawing in a child in that demographic into a computer screen to get, you know, to communicate with you is extremely challenging. And for the most part, um, you know, parents need to be more involved than usual, I mean, to say the least. And they're facilitating a lot of this therapy and it's really, um, tricky. You have to have the right client with the right parent involvement and that's baseline. And then a lot of this community here, you have to have access to internet. You have to have access to Zoom and computers and things like that. And a lot of um, the people that I work with just don't have that access. So I went from having plenty of clients to one 
And even for him, his tolerance for the length of therapy that he can sustain just by looking at a computer screen and talking with me, it has been reduced by half. You know, we cut the sessions in half because he just can't, and I don't blame him, you know, it's an eight-year-old focused on a computer screen, just talking. We can't play games. There's no laughter. There's no banter. We're not taking a two minute break to look at something else or, or, you know, shoot a ball or things like that, that we usually do to break up um, how hard and how much focus therapy can be for some children. So it's, um, you know, a huge battle. And I think a lot of people um, notice that I spend my time doing other things. Like I'm very lucky to have time to indulge in my hobbies, like scuba diving, because it's isolated. We don't, you know, you have your own air supply. Um, but I'm the person, I mean, that demographic that's really going to pay for this financially when I do have to go back to work or if the pandemic lasts too long or when the money runs out, you know, I, I, I am considered an essential worker, so I could be working. Um, if, but a lot of the families are too nervous to come to my office, um, even yep. though I assure them I will sanitize just as much as anybody. Um, but and a lot of them sometimes in this world of helping their children learn online and all the other uncertainties. I fall to the bottom of the list of importance to them. I mean, I know I think that I'm at the top of the list, but when we look at what these families have to deal with and what they have to adjust to right now, um, I understand when they just don't want to add learning the internet and Zoom and therapy with their three-year-old um, to that list. And a lot of them have more than one child. You know, I have a family with four kids under five years old. How are they going to take an hour to, to help their one middle child, you know, with their speech and language therapy over a computer screen while trying to keep the other three quiet. You know, it, it doesn't translate as much as it does if you work with adults or you have a different type of therapeutic practice. Um, so it, I'm definitely going to have to get creative if this uh, pandemic lasts a lot longer, which it looks like it will. Um, a lot of people are looking for second jobs, but the fields that second jobs are in aren't hiring retail restaurants, things no. like that. So sure. it's going to be very interesting as people like me have to get pretty creative. Um, you know, in the beginning I was very excited to be labeled an essential worker, but when you look at the people you work with, no. um, you know, if they're not willing or able to meet you in the middle, how do you work? You yeah, know, it, it's, right. it's not all on me, but I also have a very genuine understanding of their position right now. They're scared. They have to work. They have children and not all of their children are, you know, at the same neurotypical level. So it's an added stress when it comes to saying, okay, now let's add therapy to the mix. It's, it's a lot. I think the challenge, we're seeing that too here in Massachusetts. If you haven't read the kind of guidance that has come out from Desi, from the Commissioner O'Reilly um, on, on kids with IEPs, it's actually really interesting because they've, they've been doing webinars and everything. It's the, mo it's the biggest challenge we have in Boston, especially those who are um, you know, at the poverty level or a food and housing insecure and also... Um, on the autism spectrum, right, kind of have this really hands-on team approach within the schools that 
they're really struggling to um, do that, replicate that online. And, and it's a, it's a challenge that we're, it's, I would say it's one of the top challenges um, that we're facing as a district. So, so I would say that uh, if you think of yourself as a hammer and the whole world looks like a nail, uh, and so maybe I'm doing that right now, but it sounds like these kinds of things that are not working, um, that could be working, that did work in the real world, uh, are very experiential. To go back to our, our theme, it's your presence, it's your ability to look that kid in the face and say, all right, let's go shoot some hoops or whatever yeah. it is you're doing, take a break to get back yeah. the concentration that we need, or the fact that they come to your office, the parent drops them off, the other three kids might be sitting in the car or going out for ice cream or yeah. something but they're not distracting the student. And these people really need this. They really need this experiential touch. So Adrian, I was gonna ask, do you think there are lingering changes? Let's say the pandemic is over and you're back to work, things that you might do, or are you just gonna snap back to the old ways with these people who really need your presence? I mean, that's an interesting question. I do think um, right now the health insurance companies have put a temporary allowance on teletherapy. So we don't know how long that will stick. You know, that means they're going to reimburse us for our services, whether we do it over the computer or not. Um, and that's something to consider. If they go back to not reimbursing teletherapy at the same rate, then we're more motivated to get everyone back into the office. But it is interesting. You know, I have a client who takes off from work to make sure her child comes to therapy. If she were able to figure out how to get him in front of a computer instead of taking off work with his right. caregiver, then that's something that works better for her. It's just going to a lot of it's going to be affected by how the health insurances um, company uh, react after all this is over. I, my demographic and how I feel most successful is with that personal touch with the child in sure. my office. You know, we have toys and we can banter and I can tell if they're having a bad day and I'm not sitting behind a computer begging them to come back to the screen, you know? Sure. So I know for me, I would much rather be in my office with my clients. Um, I, this, is a, this experience is nice for comparative purposes, but it's certainly not something that I feel I would like to pursue after this. I, I have friends that feel differently, especially those friends who work with adults, because adults are self-disciplined, you know, and their motivation to learn or to work on speech and language therapy is different because they have, you know, the mindset that this is something they want for themselves and they understand what the possible outcome is. Um, so if you work with adults, I can foresee your practice going online, especially for adults who have the access to internet and maybe aren't able to drive a car or something like that. Right. But for those, for my demographic of children, I think for working with children, like we see in the school systems, having them in front of you makes all the difference. Adrian, I'm curious whether you think, uh, excuse me, I'm curious whether you think there's any um, effect like that for the college age population, uh, which has a certain um, personal need maybe to be in front of a professor, but maybe don't. I mean, my course was hybrid to begin with before the pandemic hit, but uh, do you think that this will um, make us um, more online? And if so, how much? Well, I think that uh, I've been saying this about faculty that those who have never taught online, that is not accidental. Yeah. Right. And so that was a choice. And so now that all the folks who 
did not cho choose to teach online are being forced to teach remotely, it's challenging. I would say the same thing for students. Students have had lots of flexible options of mixing it up and taking hybrid, online, face-to-face, -face, particularly at the grad level. And if they were on-ground students, unless they were international, and international students can't really take a lot of online classes. So if they were not, if they were domestic students and they were not taking online classes, that was a choice. They, had, they wanted to be in a face-to-face -face environment with their professor and with other students. And so those who stayed away from online, I think this is, this is a really challenging environment for them. So do you they're think they'll just snap back? Or do you think the people that the, the faculty, for example, to take them who now have to have experience teaching online will be more uh, sympathetic and interested to those who want to do this? Um, I mean, I'm thinking that more students might take some online courses while they're in the dormitories, the residence halls, um, because of the changing experience of the faculty. Because the faculty clearly are now experienced with doing this, because if they weren't, they'd be dead in their <laughs> profession that is not yeah. in the real world. Well, I yeah. think the majority of the classes that students take are based, they're scheduled not with the faculty member, but even though faculty like to think they are, <laughs> but that it's about their, you know, what fits in their schedule or what requirements they have to fulfill. And so again, and you, as you know, um, mental health issues are on the rise, um, yep. created right. an environment where we don't know if they've increased or that we've just gotten better at being um, accepting and um, supportive of folks so that they're more open about those. But um, they were able to have those needs met on campus. And a lot of times their parents don't even know about the challenges they're facing. And so for folks, and you brought up kind of um, gender transition issues, right? Who are kind of discovering or trying to figure out their how they identify. Often they're at odds with their families and right. campus is the only safe space where they can actually explore those issues and, yeah. and have support. And so um, we often think vulnerable students who can't go home are folks who are financially vulnerable, but there are emotionally and psychologically vulnerable situations too, where we've sent them home to a situation that, that may not be supportive. So growing up from living on campus is something that I'm familiar with. Uh, I think even though I didn't do a gender transition or something as radical as that, I still think I needed that experience and space in that time. It was a, a way to grow up in a sort of a general way. And I think that requires much more than being in your bedroom with uh, Nobel laureates lecturing you on a small screen. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, you find yourself. You really discover yourself and kind of break away from your family of origin and, you know, have your own identity. So oh. this is perfect. This might be a good place for us to stop because we have this wonderful synergy now between the um, autistic uh, speech therapy client of Adrian, who might be eight years old, and the real genuine connection through the emotions and, and whatever uh, we think of is going on when you learn experience to college students who are finding themselves, uh, even if it's the smallest thing as, uh, should I be an accounting major or do I want to go into education as a field, uh, much less the larger life issues that our students face. Uh, so I think it's a really uh, interesting conversation. Um, anybody want to add anything? 
I just want to say that, uh, you know, we're not going back to what it was. And so I think what I said earlier about really taking advantage of and valuing the face-to-face interaction when we have it is going to be extremely important in the future. And that is where I think experiential education gets that special real-world presence feel. The professor in his or her office, the therapist in his or her uh, office can be real-world in a way that might not be quite met by online. Well, let's end there. Thank you for listening. We hope you will come back soon for the next installation of Experience Ed. As we continue to talk about the neuroscience and sociology of enhancing higher education. By combining direct experience with classical academic learning.